Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians 1, 3 to 10. And please follow along on the slides or on your Bible. This is what the word of the Lord says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he sent forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Welcome. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at King's Church. We hope you feel warmly welcomed. If you're visiting for the first time, you're Joining us as we have last week just started a sermon series in the book of Ephesians. And we'll be in Ephesians until next summer. So we're taking our time through this book. Last week we looked at these same verses, but there's so much here. It was worth uh, spending another Sunday uh, looking more in depth in what Paul is telling us here in chapter 1 of Ephesians verses 3 to 10. The author, uh, Terry Wardle, tells the following story from his childhood. He was riding his bike through the neighborhood, and he began to cross a single-lane bridge that went went over a a small creek. And as he began to cross the bridge, he saw on the other side four teenage boys, much larger than him, standing on the other side. Terry intended to pass right by them, but they had other plans. One of the boys grabbed the handlebars of his bike, stopped him abruptly, and said, Hey, kid, where do you think you're going? Instantly, Terry knew they intended to beat him up. He was petrified. He couldn't fight or break free. He stood there frozen in fear. And suddenly, one of the bullies asked him, What's your name? Terry, in a high-pitched pre-adolescent quivering voice said, Terry Wardle. One of the bullies stopped, stared at his friends and asked him, are you related to Tom Wardle? See, Tom was his much older cousin who happened to be a defensive end on the high school football team. And so, of course, Terry lied. He said, no, Tom's my brother. (laughs) The larger boys immediately backed off They straightened out his shirt. They told him, hey, we're just funning with you. It's okay. You're great. If anybody gives you any trouble, just let us know. We'll take care of them. Now, as Wardle reflected on this experience, it made quite an impact on him. And here here are his thoughts. He said this, I learned that simply being Terry Wardle was not enough to be respected, accepted, and safe In the panic of the moment when the cry for safety was loudest, I lied. 
yes, everything did turn out okay, but I had to pretend to be something I was not, or they would have roughed me up. I had learned that this is an unsafe and ungenerous world, and that attending, attaining any degree of su- success in life would demand much more than simply being me. Simply being Terry Wardle was not enough. And perhaps you felt that way before. Simply being you is not enough. Well, if you felt that way, I'm here to tell you, you're right. You're right. You're not enough. And I believe that if you embrace that news, it can be the sweetest news you might ever hear. Now, I realize that perspective is counter to what you hear in our culture or maybe in some churches that want to inflate your self-esteem. You might hear the mantra, you just need to believe in yourself. You read the self-help books, you hear the positive thinking gurus. They tell you, you are enough. Just look within and see who you are. That is enough. And I have kids, and I've seen all the movies of the past decade. And let me tell you, every single kid's movie these days, they're all telling you, just believe in yourself. You're enough. That is the path to salvation, to freedom. But I believe Terry Wardle was right. Simply being you isn't good enough. And I believe that's what the Apostle Paul is telling us in this passage. He's telling us in Ephesians 1. Notice in verse 3, what does Paul say? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Did you catch that? Blesses us in Christ. Not blesses us because we're good enough. Not blesses us because we're special or there's anything particularly unique about us. He blesses us because by faith we are in Christ. Now, if you're paying attention at all right now, you may be asking, what does that mean to be in Christ? And if that's your question, you're not alone. This is an unusual concept that Paul developed. It's unique to Paul. And it's one of, if not the most important theological concept that the Apostle Paul talks about. Paul wrote 13 letters. And the concept of being in Christ And he talks about that in different ways. But that idea shows up over 160 times in his letters. And in this letter to the Ephesians, we're going to see it 36 times pop up time and time again over the six chapters. My wristband, I don't know if you've ever noticed, I've been wearing this for a while, has two lines on it. On one side it says, Christ is in me. On the other side it says, I am in Christ. And it is a reminder to me throughout my day of this idea that Paul is trying to get each and every Christian in this room to understand. And it is causing Paul to praise God in verses 3 to 10. We talked about this last week. This is Paul praising God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a doxology. Doxology simply means praising God. That's what these verses are. And why is Paul praising God? Well, one commentator put it this way, that this whole section is worship. God is being praised, and the focus of that praise is what God has done in Christ 
and what is available in Christ. And what is available in Christ? Well, he tells us here in verse 3, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now notice, Paul is not promoting a prosperity gospel here. Uh, prosperity gospel or theology, proponents of that type of thinking believe that God promises you health and wealth to bless you if you have strong faith. But as the pastor Sinclair Ferguson notes in this section, Paul's point is not that Faith is the cause of any of these blessings, but faith receives these blessings. Our faith is the hand by which we receive all these blessings that Paul is talking about here. The Apostle Paul was neither healthy or wealthy, if you know Paul's story. And here he's writing this letter in prison. And so Paul, on Paul's mind, was not his physical health or his physical wealth. It's not the kinds of blessings that we often want from God, physical blessings. Paul understood God has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. And these spiritual blessings are given to us by the Holy Spirit. Spiritual there refers to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, those blessings we receive through Him. And the heavenly places here, it's not a location so much. It's not heaven per se. But Paul's trying to get us to consider the spiritual realities of of the universe. It's not just a physical world that we live in. But when you come to faith in Christ, in Christ your eyes are opened up to new realities. A spiritual reality brings to mind the words of the famous him, amazing grace, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. You're blind to these spiritual realities, these heavenly places before coming to faith, but when you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, it opens up all new spiritual realities, heavenly places to you. Now those are accessible because of Christ. And what's incredible here is Paul is saying that in Christ, all these blessings are available to us. Uh, Klein Snodgrass, a commentator, said, said it this way, It's as if Christ were a vast repository holding the gifts of God. Now, I was trying to come up with an illustration to help us get an idea of what Paul's saying here how he's expressing this. And, and, and this illustration came to mind the other night when I was having dinner with a friend of mine who, who uh, started and owns CandyWarehouse.com. It's a warehouse uh, online where you can buy candy. But it just so happens there are actual physical warehouses in here in Long Beach. And I have a photo of it. This is uh, inside Candy Warehouse. Right, all the kids are like... <gasps> The candy. <laughs> and that's what it feels like when you're in there. It's like you're, it's sensory overload. It's little candies, big candies, 50-pound gummy bears. I mean, it's crazy. I don't know if it's 50 pounds, but it, maybe five pounds, all right? Uh, but they're huge. It's incredible, all the candy that's available to you. Candy everywhere. And forgive me for making this connection, but it's like Jesus is that warehouse, <laughs> That's what Paul's telling us. It's like 
Jesus' candy warehouse. And when we go and we're in this warehouse, we're in Christ, and you look around and all these blessings are available to you, and you don't have to pay for them. They're given to you by the Holy Spirit. It's like, grab, grab whatever you want. That's what Paul's telling us here. In verses 7 and 8, he describes it this way, the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. The blessings are overwhelming and abundant. God lavishes us. That word lavishes, I mean, just an overwhelming amount of blessings, the riches of his grace. And what is grace? But a gift. And it is not a gift earned. It is a gift given freely. It is unmerited. And this word grace was common in the Greco-Roman world. It was often used to denote favor of the gods or the favor of the emperor, the favor of, the, uh, of, of grace. And Paul uses this concept time and time again in his letters over 90 times. God lavishing us with his unmerited favor. Nothing you've done. Again, you're not enough. It's because of Christ. God blesses us. And uh, I'll quote Klein again. He says, Grace is the judge of the universe asking criminals to sit down to a meal in his home. Love that image. But of course, the spiritual blessings Paul is writing about aren't jolly ranchers and they aren't snicker bars. <laughs> he lists them in this passage. He lists our election, our adoption, our redemption and forgiveness. And so that's what I want to cover quickly for the rest of my time here with you this morning. Let's take a moment, talk about these blessings that are ours in Christ. Perhaps the most controversial is right here with election. In verses 4 and 5, Paul tells us, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now this is uh, controversial among Christians. If you're new to the faith or not a Christian, you may not realize this, but this is a very controversial issue. We are Presbyterians. We are uh, what you call Calvinists. We come from that tradition. John Calvin from the 16th century, he, he was a big promote, pro, uh, proponent of election. And it's not necessarily the topic of election that is controversial, because obviously it's taught here in Scripture, but where it gets sticky for people is what do we mean by election? For example, some people might talk about, well, election here, Paul's talking corporately, not individually, not individuals. I don't know how that works. I don't know how God elects a corporate group of people without electing individuals, but somehow that makes people feel better. I don't understand it, but um, the, really the issue is about whether it's conditional election or unconditional election. So the, so the three ways people view it are this. Uh, first, one camp is the, the, the camp that doesn't talk about it at all. <laughs> election is uncomfortable. Election makes us upset or, or we don't want to get into an argument and so we don't talk about it, we ignore it. But here Paul, it's leading Paul to worship God. 
this idea of election is leading Paul to praise God. It was important for Paul. It was important for him to teach us about this. And so it should be important to us, and we should talk about it. And so we shouldn't ignore it. We shouldn't be embarrassed about it. Uh, the second position is this idea of conditional election. This would be uh, the, the perspective that what Paul is talking about with election is that it's conditional, meaning that God could see in the future who would choose him. And those are the people God has chosen. It's conditional on their choosing God first. That's why God chooses them. But Charles Spurgeon, I think, puts it well, the 19th century famous preacher. He said, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I would never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterward. <laughs> Amen, Charles. Unconditional election, I think, is clearly what Paul's talking about here. This is why he says before the creation of the world, God chose us. Not on our decision to choose him. It's nothing in us. It's unconditional. And so you might ask, well, why, why would God choose me? Why would God do that? And, and as one author puts it, God the Father elects his people on the basis of his eternal overwhelming, sovereign affection for them. Why did he love them? Because he chose to do so. You see, it's in God, and it's his choice and his love that we are elect and we are chosen and we are predestined. And that leads Paul to praise God. And uh, Garrison Keeler of NPR fame recalls the childhood pain of being chosen last for the neighborhood baseball teams. Uh, he describes the scene this way. The captains are down to their last grudging choices. A slow kid for catcher. Someone to stick out in right field where no one hits it. They choose the last ones two at a time. You and you because it makes no difference. And the remaining kids, the scrubs, the excess, they deal, they deal for us as handicaps. Okay, I'll take him, but you've got, you got to take the other kid. And so he says this. He said, sometimes I go as high as six, usually lower, but just once I'd like Daryl, one of the captains, to pick me first and say, him, I want him. The skinny kid with the glasses and the black shoes, come on. But Keeler says this, but I've never been chosen with much enthusiasm. And what Paul wants you to see, if you're in Christ, you have been chosen with great enthusiasm by the king of the universe. He has chosen you in his love for you. And it should lead your heart to sing. That's what Paul wants you to see this morning. That's the blessing, the first blessing he offers us. The second one here is our adoption. He says in verse 5, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. The emphasis on adoption here shows that the purpose of election is relational. 
It's relational. It's not to make you feel superior. It's not for, for you to feel like, wow, I'm special. It's for you to be drawn into a relationship with God the Father. God is forming his family through the centuries. And you and I, in Christ, if your faith is in Christ, you are a part of God's new family that he's been forming. And this language of sons isn't intended to make the women feel left out. No, 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 no. See the beauty of this. Paul's using language of of inheritance in his day and time when a son was the one who would inherit the family wealth. And so whether you're a man or woman in this room today, Paul's wonderful news to you is you are treated as a son. Which means in Paul's day, all the inheritance is yours in Christ. That's what's so incredible about this idea of being adopted into the family of God, whether you're a man or a woman. You have equal access. There are three powerful moments in my life. The first one was the day standing in the delivery room at UCLA in 2006 when Carter was born, my first child. The second moment that's seared in my memory is in Los Alamitos Hospital, the delivery room when Teddy came into the world. But the third moment that is seared in my memory was at Edelman Children's Court in L.A., in the courtroom, the day that the judge hit the gavel and declared that my daughter was to be legally a mother. And she had equal standing, my sons, equal rights as a mother. And it rocked my world in that moment. All the wonder of our adoption into the family of God hit me like a ton of bricks. And why Paul can sing God's praises in that moment as he considers what has happened as we have been adopted into the family of God. And that you and I have standing and status as sons of the living God. You and I can hold our heads high. We are not orphans. We have not been abandoned. Friends, let the wonder of that sink in. Let it grip your hearts. It's what Paul wants for us to see this blessing that we have. And the third and final one I want to mention here this morning is here in verse 7 where he talks about our redemption and our forgiveness. In verse 7 he says, In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. In the first century world, this term for redemption, it was used in connection with purchasing the freedom of a slave. So Paul's using this word, redemption, to speak of your freedom that Jesus won for you on the cross through his blood. His blood was the purchase price for you to be set free. See, Paul understood each one of us are born into this world as slaves. Our hands, our feet are bound, our mouths are gagged. We are kidnapped in our sin with No way to save ourselves. No way to rescue ourselves. No way to pay the price. 
in and of ourselves. But Jesus paid the ransom for us, for you, for me. And this idea of payment, it's integral to this idea of forgiveness. Forgiveness. If you've ever had to forgive someone, you know there's a cost associated with that. Sometimes it's an emotional cost. Sometimes it might be a physical cost. For example, if a family comes over and their kids are playing with your kids' toys and one of those kids breaks the child, your child's toy, I mean, you could demand that they pay for it. But if you were to forgive them, you were to forgive them, you would absorb the cost. You would absorb the cost of that toy. Say, it's not, it's okay. It's okay. Don't worry about it. It's fine. That's the costliness of forgiveness. And Paul's saying that cost has been paid by Christ. And this is why redemption and forgiveness, this sense of costliness leads Paul to sing God's praises, this amazing news that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, would give His life for you. I read this week about the story, an amazing military expedition in the 19th century. For four years, the emperor of Ethiopia held a group of 53 Europeans captive. It was around 30 adults and 23 children. It included some missionaries and a British Council, consul in a remote fortress deep in Ethiopia at 9,000 feet, elevation of 9,000 feet. Queen Victoria at the time had written letters to this emperor of Ethiopia pleading for him to release these captives, to redeem them, to forgive them, so to speak. But the emperor ignored her pleas and eventually the British ordered a full-scale military expedition from India to march into Ethiopia, to, not to conquer the country, not to make a colony, a British colony, but simply to rescue these civilians. And so this invasion force, it included 32,000 men, heavy artillery, 44 elephants to carry the guns. Provisions included 55,000 tons of beef and pork, 30,000 gallons of rum. Can't forget the rum, right? Engineers built landing piers, water treatment plants, a railroad, a telegraph line into the interior of Ethiopia, plus many bridges. All of this to fight one decisive battle, after which the prisoners were released, everyone packed up, went home. The British expended millions of pounds, millions of dollars, to rescue a handful of captives. And one historian, Harold Marcus, described this expedition as one of the most expensive affairs of honor in history. Now, when I read this, I don't know about you, for a moment, I couldn't help but wonder, was it worth the cost? Only 53 people. And I wonder... And maybe you would say, yes, it's worth the cost, but then would it be worth it if it was 20 people? Would it be worth it if it was 10 people? Would it be worth it if it was one person? All that expense, all that effort. And Paul's answer for us 
and the redemption Christ has bought us and purchased for us with his very life is yes. You are worth it. All the blessings, all the riches God has granted to you, you're worth it. You're worth it. Now, as we reflect on that and as we look forward in the weeks ahead, the months ahead, as we explore this letter to the Ephesians, we need to see that all these blessings that Paul's talking about here are not for us to hoard. (laughs) And they're not for us simply to store up for our own benefits. Paul makes it clear that all these blessings God has granted us in Christ He says in verse 4, so that we should be holy and blameless before him. This is where we we trip up as Christians, especially maybe as Calvinists. We, We praise God for our adoption, our election in the family of God, but we need to see that there was a purpose and intent God had from the very beginning. And that's that we would be his people, that we would glorify him as we draw on those rich resources of his blessings and live lives. Not that we will be pure and holy in this life. Paul's speaking to that day when we will stand before God in Christ glorified, but we are on that path to that day, even now. As Klein says, Election does indeed bring privilege, but not so that people can bask in privilege or disdain others. Election always brings responsibility. And that's what we're going to explore in the weeks and months ahead as we bask in this letter, marinate in Ephesians, and let the truths of what Paul has to teach us change us as we glory in his love for us. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for this amazing news that Paul has given us here in Ephesians 1. I ask as we enter into this time preparing for the Lord's Supper, would you bring to mind these words of our election, of our adoption, our redemption, our forgiveness. And may these blessings settle in our hearts Cause us to sing joyfully to you, our Father. Lord Jesus, thank you for this meal that we will be sharing together. We pray that you would use it to strengthen us in our faith as we are reminded of the costliness of your blood for us. But also remember that you believe we are worth it. Each and every one of us, we are worth it. And we thank you for that, Lord. And we pray in your name. Amen.